So I always say on a holiday weekend with snow on the ground, you find out who the truly committed are in church. This is MLK weekend. Tomorrow is a holiday to honor the life and legacy of a man who gave his life for a message that seems obvious uh, to many of us that all are created equal and that we should be judged by the content of our character and not the color of our skin. Uh, So as we begin this morning, I want to share just a few of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s quotes. He said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. So this weekend and tomorrow we... Uh, remember and honor uh, King's legacy, his courage, his passion for uh, equality, and how we should all be measured uh, by our hearts and by what's on the inside. We're in a January series called Reset, uh, operating under the premise that the new year is a great time to reset our lives. Uh, We started the first Sunday by looking at our core beliefs. We asked the question, What do we believe? What are we building our lives upon? What's the solid foundation for our lives? And then last week we uh, started this uh, topic, Rules for Living, by looking at the first four of the Ten Commandments, which are, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol, don't take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now remember, these four have to do with our relationship with God. And we move on today to the final six, which have to do with our relationship with each other, how we are to interact, how we are to live together as a culture, as a, uh, as a society. Uh, the Ten Commandments were given by God to the Israelite people because God had led them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery. Uh, God had cared for their well-being, and there were certain expectations for how they were to live and how we are to live. Uh, Centuries later, Jesus would come along and basically sum up these Ten Commandments with two commandments. First, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. But these ten rules still apply. They are a much more specific description of how we are to live, how we are to act, how we are to treat each other, Following these rules is in our best interest. And when we don't follow these rules, when we don't follow these commandments, it can lead to problems. Rule number five, honor your father and mother. My mother took her own life 13 and a half years ago because she was severely depressed. But I've done everything in my power to honor her legacy and to remember the many good years when she was healthy and happy. Uh, Her life wasn't always the way that it was at the end. I think this commandment is much more challenging for adults than it is for children because there is something that happens as we get older. When we grow up and we become adults, and it takes some longer than others, we begin to see the flaws and shortcomings of our parents. At one point in life, we thought that our parents hung the moon. We thought that they could do no wrong. We thought that they had it all together. 
And then we, we get older and we start to realize that they too have flaws, that they don't have it all together. And it catches some people by surprise. We all experience this to, to some degree. It, it can be disillusioning. It can be disappointing. And some people have a very hard time uh, coming to terms with this reality. This commandment can be difficult for some people, for those who feel as though their parents deserve or do not deserve to be honored because of something that's happened in the past. Maybe your dad left when you were young and you never knew him. Maybe you were physically or sexually abused as a, as a child. Maybe there was infidelity in your family of origin, your parents' marriage. Maybe there was a drinking problem or an addiction in your house. Maybe there was a favoritism showed to another sibling. Maybe your parents had completely unrealistic expectations of you and how they expected you to live and you thought that you could never, ever measure up to it. Maybe your parents got a divorce at a time when you needed them most and they were busy fighting with each other, too busy fighting to pay attention to your needs. Maybe you're like me and you lost a parent to uh, suicide or some other kind of illness and you're not really sure what honoring them looks like after something like that happens. This commandment is not easy for anybody and some have a very difficult time with it and perhaps for good reason. If you love your parents, if you think that they're wonderful, uh, then it's easy to honor them. It's easy to sing their praises. But listen to what it says after this commandment in the text, Exodus 20. Honor your father and mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You see, in ancient Israel, the family unit lived together and traveled together. And when parents started to age, when they grew older, uh, their children and grandchildren would take care of them. It's just what they did. And if you wanted your children to take care of you when you got old, then you first had to take care of your parents because life comes full circle. Can you be disappointed with your parents? Absolutely. My mom never got to see her kids get married. She never got to meet her grandchildren. Can you get frustrated with your parents? Yes. But God says honor them, respect them, cut them some slack, and perhaps one day your children will honor you. Rule number six, you shall not murder or you shall not kill, as it says in some versions. Hopefully nobody here this morning is struggling with this rule. It seems pretty clear. But for obvious reasons, this commandment opens the door to discussions and topics where faith and politics seem to inevitably collide. We would all agree that this commandment is good and that, that it makes sense, but Christians can agree as to when it should be enforced. War, the death penalty, abortion, euthanasia, to name a few topics. Personally, I've always been drawn, I've told you this before, to what has been called a consistent ethic of life. So generally speaking, I am against war because I think war is hell. I'm against the death penalty because I support other measures of criminal punishment. Personally, I tend to be pro-life, but at the same time, I respect the fact that a woman has the right to make decisions regarding her own body. 
It's amazing how a simple commandment can become so controversial. And we would do, we could do an entire sermon series on this one commandment and all the different ways that it plays out in our culture and in our lives, but we've got to keep moving this morning. I'll quote Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willeman, who say this in that book, The Truth About God, God, the giver of life, is the only one with the right to take life. The fundamental presumption in Scripture is quite simple. Life belongs to God. Life is not an end in itself. Life is God's creation. We stand in awe of life as we stand in awe of God. And I think when it comes to these difficult topics, the Christians would do well to listen to each other civilly, to understand each other as best they can. Rule number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Very few things will rock a marriage like infidelity. Uh, It's the ultimate betrayal of trust. But I do believe that marriages can get through it because I've helped couples do that. Adultery is a symptom that something has gone wrong in the marriage. Generally speaking, men and women who commit adultery want to feel loved and affirmed chased and admired, heard and respected, and for whatever reason, they're not finding that in their marriage. Lots of times when adultery happens, the marriage has been put on on cruise control, on automatic. It's not been a priority for some time. So the best thing that we can do is to focus on what it means to intentionally love another person and to live out the vows that we said before God and before our family and friends. The best thing that we can do is to remember and to live those famous words of Paul, that love is patient and love is kind and love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things and it endures all things. Love, Paul says, never ends. Love must be proactive Neglecting love is often what leads to adultery. And the best way to prevent adultery is to be intentional in your marriage, to make your spouse a priority. Boundaries have become very important and necessary in our culture. In their well-known book titled Boundaries, Henry Cloud and John Townsend say this, They say many clinical psychological symptoms such as depression and anxiety disorders and addictions and impulsive disorders and guilt and problems and shame and panic disorders and marital and relational struggles find their root in conflicts with boundaries. Boundaries matter in marriage and in life. They must be set and they must be honored. Boundaries will keep us from making poor decisions But there is still no substitute for being proactive in your marriage and in your relationship. Healthy couples make their relationship a priority. And if you've had to go through a divorce or a separation, then hopefully you learned from your previous relationship. And when you get into a a new relationship, you won't make the same uh, mistakes that were made before. Healthy couples are intentional. They are proactive. Rule number eight, you shall not steal. Now, I'm going to say this uh, carefully. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, I can tell you some stories about theft. 
I could tell you about our yard guy. He broke into our garage when I was young, and he stole our leaf vacuum. Uh, I could tell you about trying to lead a young adult Bible study when I was a young adult minister and, and people had come over and they were parked on the street and thieves came not once but twice in the same night to break into cars and to steal stuff out of those cars. I could tell you about my best friend who walked out one morning and found his car up on blocks in his driveway. The, the tires had been stolen. I could tell you lots of stories about theft, but I want to talk about theft as it relates to stealing things that are less tangible. Theft as omission and neglect, it doesn't just apply to stuff. Adultery is a form of theft. Not only is it stealing somebody else's spouse, it can also lead to stealing the happiness and well-being of two marriages, two families. There's always a lot of collateral damage when it comes to adultery. Lots of lives get affected, lots of people get hurt. But what about the concept of stealing valuable time? A time that should be spent with our families, our spouses, our children. What about working way too much, being away from home way too much, giving everybody else our best and giving what's left over to our own family, not being fully present when we are around the people that deserve our best? What about having more than enough resources and not helping those who are in desperate need could that be viewed as a form of theft? Harawas and Willimon say temperance, the moderate attachment to the world's goods and the pursuit of justice, limiting our desire to pursue our neighbor's goods as well as increasing our desire to render them is what, what, what is their due, are ways we learn to be a people who are not captured by theft. To be able to say enough is enough, to see our neighbor's needs as a claim upon our possessions are great, though difficult, virtues. If we ever thought of theft as failing to help somebody, especially somebody who has a basic subsistence need, as a form of theft. Theft takes lots of forms, but there is one thing that we can never get back and never replace, and that is time. So we must be very careful with how we spend our time. Time is precious. It's priceless. We must use it wisely. Rule number nine. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. Tell the truth. Many books and articles have been written on this subject, but there are five consistent themes that I've discovered as to why people lie, why they don't tell the truth. The first is fear. We lie because we fear letting the truth be known. We're afraid of what others might think or say if we told the truth. Fear is also directly tied to having a lack of courage and self-confidence. The second reason is shame and guilt, and those are tied together. There's a lot of shame and guilt in our culture which causes people to, to be afraid. People have done and will do things that they are not proud of. And when they are asked about it, they will lie to cover, cover it up and to avoid talking about it. Then there's selfishness. People lie because they're looking out for themselves. And they don't mind deceiving others or misleading others as long as it will continue to benefit them personally. You know, when it comes down to it, almost all lying is basically selfish. 
We deceive each other to make ourselves feel and look better. Fourth reason, people lie, ambition. People lie because it will help them achieve something. It will help them move forward in their career. It will help them get more money or more prestige. It will help them earn the next position or get ahead of somebody else. And then lastly, people lie because they want to be nice. They don't want to hurt people. We will often lie, especially in the South, because we don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings. We feel that the truth will actually do more damage than good, so we don't tell the truth. We now live in a culture where everybody, and I mean everybody, is having a hard time figuring out what is true and what is not. You know you can watch two different news stations covering the same story, and they will directly contradict each other. And then most people will just pick the one that, that will give them the answer or the conclusion that they are looking for. What is truth? Veritas. And how do we know if we are being told the truth? Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It used to be that there was a, a set of agreed upon facts and then everybody would have their opinion about those facts. But the facts were not disputed. Now it seems that many people can't agree upon the facts. It's a brave new world. Is global warming a reality? Will a wall make our country safer? Does Nashville have a traffic problem? Is there an affordable housing crisis? Truth matters. And we are commanded to seek the truth and to tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, then you have nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. But if you don't tell the truth, then it's going to catch up with you. Lying is a slippery slope because people usually have to keep lying to cover up previous lies. It's okay to say, I was wrong. I was mistaken. It's okay to say, I, I don't know. It's okay to say, let me find out and get back to you. The truth will set you free. We're commanded to tell the truth. It's healthy for our relationships. It's healthy for our friendships. It's healthy for our marriages. Um, telling the truth is what God wants us to do. It's what Jesus wants us to do. Now, I'm going to talk about the 10th and final rule uh, next Sunday. You shall not covet. But in the meantime, I want you to reflect upon these five I want you to think about these commandments as being the basic grounds for living an ethical life. I want you to think about the times when you have fallen short, because we all fall short, and make a commitment to do better as we move forward in this new year. I'll close this morning with one more quote by Martin Luther King, who said this, People fail to get along because they fear each other, they fear each other because they don't know each other, and they don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. Amen.